0: I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. The new Supreme Court term is about to begin, with the first day of arguments slated for Monday, October 5th. To preview what's ahead, I'm joined by two of America's leading Supreme Court correspondents and two great friends of We the People and the National Constitution Center. Adam Liptak covers the Supreme Court and writes Sidebar, a column on legal developments for the New York Times. He practiced law for 14 years before joining the Times and has taught courses on the Supreme Court at several law schools, including Yale and the University of Chicago. Adam, it is wonderful to have you back on the show.
1: It's nice to be here, Jeff.
0: And Marsha Coyle is Supreme Court Correspondent for the National Constitution Center's blog, Constitution Daily. We are so honored to have her as part of the National Constitution Center family. She's also Chief Washington Correspondent for the National Law Journal. She's covered the Supreme Court for 25 years and is a regular contributor to PBS NewsHour. She's the author of the 2013 book, which I recommend to We the People listeners, The Roberts Court. Marsha, it is wonderful to have you back on the show. Great to be with you, Jeff. We're now about to begin the Supreme Court term with eight justices in light of the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Adam, set the stage for us. How will the court approach the cases it hears with eight justices, and how might the addition of Justice Amy Comey Barrett, if she is confirmed, change the dynamic?
1: Well, Jeff, our last experience with an eight-member court uh, for more than a year after the passing of Justice Antonin Scalia in 2016 surprised me a little bit because that court, though shorthanded, worked hard to achieve compromise uh, and stay out of the spotlight, Uh, but it was ideologically divided four-four. So that dynamic is a little different than the court we have now, which using the usual markers of um, the party of the president who appointed the justices, looks like a 5-3 court. So this court may not be very different from the court that had Justice Ginsburg on it because it retains a five-member conservative majority. Of course, they don't always find themselves in that array, but I think in the short term, they're less likely to add big cases to the docket until they sort of see where things are going. And in the early cases, which won't uh, yet have uh, Justice Barrett on it if she's confirmed, Uh, I expect them to be uh, a little tentative and cautious.
0: Marsha, as Adam says, it's a five to three court. Might Chief Justice Roberts be more likely to join the liberal justices to avoid partisan splits? And how do you think the dynamic might play out with or without the addition of a potential Justice Barrett?
2: Well, I think, as we saw last term, that the Chief Justice, although very conservative in his own ideology, is also an institutionalist. And I think that will be foremost in his mind as the court moves forward in the new term with or without uh, a ninth justice. Uh, Whether uh, in the uh, short term, uh, he's uh, when the court is with just eight justices, he'll feel compelled to do that, perhaps more so. Uh, I think once there is a ninth justice, and if it is uh, Judge Barrett, Uh, his ability to uh, craft consensus uh, with the left uh, becomes quite diminished because the five conservative justices to his right uh, will no longer really need his vote either. uh, And he will only have three on the left in which to uh, uh, meld uh, a consensus or compromise position. Uh, Up until now, he has been considered the median justice, uh, the one who really essentially can control how far and how fast the court moves the law to the right. Uh, But let's look at the numbers. If you have six conservatives and you only need five votes in order to form a majority, uh, he becomes less important with that ninth justice. I think too, Jeff, it's important to point out that uh, the eight justice court uh, really probably will only be in October if the Senate Majority Leader's timeline for confirmation of Judge Barrett holds true. Uh, and she is confirmed, she would be sitting in time for the November arguments. And also, just a reminder that, uh, the arguments once again for October will be virtual. They will be telephonic and all of our listeners I will be able to tune into those arguments.
0: Adam, one more beat about the extraordinary context in which the court is meeting. Democrats are saying that if they win the White House and both houses of Congress, then they may increase the size of the court. Might that background have any impact on the way the court decides cases and on Chief Justice Roberts' determination to avoid the kind of partisan splits that might provoke court packing?
1: I think if we look back to the last term, Jeff, which did end with a series of some surprising liberal decisions on abortion, on immigration, on the rights of gay and transgender people. I do think that there might be some hydraulic pressure that the court was trying to demonstrate and the chief justice in particular was trying to demonstrate that the court is not a political but a legal institution And that may have been a reaction to what was already talk uh, from some Democrats uh, that the court size should be increased. Uh, Those Democrats furious over what they view as the stolen seat after Republicans refused to hold a hearing for President Obama's uh, Supreme Court nominee, Merrick Garland. That pressure only increases now where the left is even more furious that having refused to hold a hearing uh, for the better part of a year for Judge Garland, uh, the left would say uh, that Republicans are acting with unseemly haste in trying to get Judge Barrett onto the court. So there will be more pressure of that kind. But as Marsha was pointing out, a 6-3 to court is much less nimble Uh, than a 5-4 court. And it would require uh, real consensus for them to demonstrate and to want to demonstrate that kind of uh, apolitical attitude. So the chances of the kind of pressure that you saw when FDR tried to pack the court... It didn't succeed, of course, in a, in, a, in, in a numerical sense. But many people thought that the effort did succeed in pushing the court to start to uphold New Deal programs. I don't think that same dynamic will be present here. And I think that makes more likely what just a few months ago I would have thought quite unlikely, that there would be a realistic effort to change the size of the court.
0: Marsha, you noted the 6-3 to three dynamic. Can you imagine the six justices and potential conservative majority being concerned enough about court packing that they might seek consensus? Or do you agree with Adam?
2: I, I tend to agree with Adam. Uh, I, I do think that, uh, they can't be, uh, not unaware. Sorry for all the double negatives that, uh, this is happening. You remember Jeff, uh, the, the famous quote, uh, by the constitutional scholar, um, whose name just, you know, I'm having one of those moments, uh, you'll know who I mean when he said that, um, the Supreme court should never must never be influenced by the weather of the day, but inevitably is influenced by the climate of the era. And, uh, I think that, uh, they will be aware not only of the, uh, the, the politics that is going on in Congress, uh, if uh, the Democrats do regain control of the Senate, the House, and, and attempt to do something, but also the fact that uh, we are very much uh, also still within a pandemic uh, and a real concern for uh, how the institution will be viewed. Uh, but I, I, I think overall that uh, Adam is correct with the 6-3 majority. Uh, it is less likely to, to have a real impact.
0: I happen to remember the weather of the day quotation from my RBG studies, and it's from her great Harvard Law School teacher, Paul Freund.
2: That's right. Exactly. Thank you. And of course, Justice Ginsburg quoted it too.
0: All right, let's plug into the cases. I'd love you both to give listeners a sense of the constitutional arguments on both sides of the cases so they can make up their own minds about how the cases should come out. Let's begin in the obvious place, California versus Texas. That's the Affordable Care Act case. It's become a campaign issue with Vice President Biden charging that a Justice Barrett would be more likely to join the Conservatives in striking down the Affordable Care Act. California versus Texas asks whether the individual mandate is unconstitutional, and if so, whether it's severable from the rest of the Affordable Care Act. To remind listeners, in 2017, Congress reduced the tax penalty attached to the individual mandate, so the tax penalty for not being insured, in other words, to zero. Some argue that that eliminated the ability to characterize the individual mandate as a tax and therefore rendered the Affordable Care Act unconstitutional. Adam, what are the arguments on both sides?
1: So this gets very tangled very fast, but let's try to keep this at a general level, at least at first, Jeff. This is the third major challenge to President Obama's signature legislative achievement, the Affordable Care Act. Some people call it Obamacare. The first two challenges failed with, uh, in one of them, Chief Justice Roberts joining the courts for Liberal Wing, in the other of them, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kennedy, who of course has since retired, joining the courts for Member Liberal Wing. So purely as a numerical composition of the court matter, this court might seem to be more receptive to uh, arguments against the Affordable Care Act, because if we went with the earlier configurations, what you might end up with is a 4-4 split if Chief Justice Roberts joins the now three liberal members of the court. But the arguments in the case are different and many sophisticated legal observers believe that at least part of the argument is a real uphill fight for the challengers. Let me sketch out the argument. When uh, Chief Justice Roberts voted to uphold uh, the individual mandate, the uh, the, the law's requirement that you buy insurance or pay a penalty, He said that could not be justified under the congressional uh, commerce power, but could be justified under the congressional power to levy taxes. uh, Because there was a financial penalty, he characterized it as a tax. In 2017, uh, after many, many attempts to repeal the entire law, uh, the uh, Republican-controlled Congress uh, zeroed out the tax penalty. And the argument goes that since there is no more tax to be paid, uh, Chief Justice Roberts' justification uh, for upholding the individual mandate disappears. And that argument is trivial. Maybe it's right, maybe it's not, maybe un- it's unconstitutional, maybe it's not. It's the next step of the argument that's much more problematic. Uh, the Red states challenging uh, the law say that because you don't now have uh, the individual mandate, the entire sprawling 2,000-page law must fall. And this is not a court, left or right, that's particularly fond of that form of argument. It is instead much more likely to sever the part of a law that's unconstitutional and leave the balance of the law intact. And while Judge Barrett has indeed been critical of Chief Justice Roberts' reasoning in the 2012 case, uh, there's no particular reason to think she'd be sympathetic to the arguments uh, that the entire law must fall. And so there's a kind of political and performative aspect to what's going on here. It's interesting to note that the case was appealed to the court not by the challengers, but by California and other blue states, hoping to keep it in the public eye. And in a funny way, the usual positions are flipped. So the Wall Street Journal editorial page just uh, uh, Monday wrote that this is a dubious lawsuit with no chance of success at the Supreme Court. I'm paraphrasing, but it's close to that. While scholars on the left say there's a real significant chance that uh, Justice Barrett and other conservatives will vote to strike down the entire law, uh, but I think the consensus of reasonable, sophisticated legal analysis is that the broadest claims in the in the lawsuit are an uphill fight. But I'm eager to hear Marsha's views. She's such a sharp observer of the court, and she may have a different take than me.
0: Uh, Marsha, so there are two questions. First, when Congress zeroed out the mandate. Did it convert what had been upheld as a tax into an unconstitutional mandate? And the second question is, if it did do that, could that provision be severed from the rest of the law? Help our listeners understand both of those arguments.
2: Well, first of all, uh, if if you go back to uh, 2012, when the first challenge to the act was before the Supreme Court, uh, there were four justices at the time who believed that, and, and these were the four conservative justices including uh, Justice Kennedy, who who believed that the mandate uh, was so essential to the Act and the mandate, along with uh, other provisions, key provisions, for example, uh, preventing uh, insurance companies from charging more because you're older or you have a pre-existing condition, uh, that if the mandate fell, then it, the whole act had to fall because that was so essential. And that's the, the argument again here by the uh, Republican-led states that are challenging the act uh, this time, uh, that it has to fall. Now, you have to think, you know, well, who's left on the court? Uh, you have the Chief Justice. You have uh, Justices uh, Alito and Thomas. And Alito and Thomas at the time were in dissent They believed that the act was the mandate was unconstitutional, even as a tax, and that the entire law must fall. So, are they going to still be receptive to this type of argument? uh, That uh, who knows? Uh, uh, I they are so firm that dissent uh, that uh, was written at the time by Justice Scalia was so strong uh, that perhaps they will cling to that position. But whether. the, the other the newest justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh uh, would uh, feel similarly. I, I kind of doubt it. I, I think that they uh, are as Adam pointed out uh, probably more likely to join the chief justice if they're, if if they feel that the mandate is unconstitutional uh, without the uh, tax part portion of it that they're more likely to uh, use as the chief justice has often said a scalpel instead of a sledgehammer and take out that part of the law and leave the rest of the law intact. I think, Jeff, too, it's very important that people realize just how sweeping this act is. It's not just uh, providing health insurance to 20 million people. This act has so many provisions, everything from setting out nutritional guidelines for school lunches to reversing a Reagan era change that made it harder for minors and the, and their families to, uh, collect black lung benefits. So, uh, and that's not even talking about the Medicaid acts at, uh, I'm sorry, Medicaid aspect of the law. Uh, Congress had also allowed, uh, the court's ruling allowed, uh, Medicaid expansion in certain in states that were willing to do it. And you have many millions of people that have taken advantage of the Medicaid expansion. Uh, I'm sure also that uh, even though the court's going to focus primarily on the legal arguments here and the constitutional arguments, uh, the court is probably well aware, again, of the pandemic. And the fact that many Americans, millions, have lost their health insurance as they've lost their jobs, their employer-provided health insurance, and have turned to the Ford- Affordable Care Act uh, as a lifeline for health insurance. So uh, there, there are a lot of external forces at play as the court takes up this case, as well as the legal and constitutional questions.
0: Well, our next case is Fulton versus Philadelphia. In March 2018, the city of Philadelphia barred Catholic social services from placing children in foster homes because of its policy of not allowing same-sex couples to be foster parents. So this case raises a series of questions, including whether the court should revisit its decision in Employment Division versus Smith. We the People Friends, you'll remember that we discussed the Smith case on an episode at the end of the last Supreme Court term. Uh, Fulton also asks whether... The government violates the First Amendment by conditioning religious agencies' ability to participate in the foster care system on taking actions and making statements that contradict the agency's religious beliefs. Adam, what do listeners need to know about this case?
1: So the question in this case is whether Philadelphia can require as a contractual matter uh, the foster care agencies with whom it contracts, uh, to comply with non-discrimination provisions um, that they have to serve all families, including uh, same-sex families. A foster care agency run by the Catholic Church says it doesn't want to do that. It doesn't think uh, gay parents are, are, are fit parents for uh, foster children. And it wants to, in a sense, uh, be given the right to renegotiate contracts uh, that the city issued. Uh, This is, in a way, a reprise of the case from a few years ago, Masterpiece Cake Shop, where a baker didn't want to create a custom wedding cake for a same-sex marriage because it offended his faith. But it's also a little different because it's quite a thing for anyone to say, I have a right to contract with the government on the terms that I want to contract with the government on. In fairness to the Catholic agency, this is foster care has been something the church has been doing for millennia. uh, And the fact that the government has kind of occupied the field uh, may give them a special claim here. But I think the thought experiment that I find very useful is what if we were talking about race discrimination? And there have been in the history of the world and and even recently... um, churches that have taken the position that they didn't think interracial couples would make fit parents. Would anyone think that's appropriate that you should have a right to a contract to accommodate that set of religious beliefs? And if I'm right, that nobody would think that it's becomes a little harder to justify the notion that, uh, bias against, uh, same-sex couples should be accorded the same level of uh, religious protection. That said, this is a court that has been very sympathetic to these sorts of religious claims, and I would expect the foster agencies to win. I don't know that this is the case in which the court is going to or needs to revisit uh, the case in which it said that neutral laws of general applicability uh, can be sustained uh, where religion is involved.
0: Marcia, as Adam just defined the Smith case, it said that neutral laws of general applicability can be applied to religious minorities without requiring religious exemptions. Although some have called for Smith to be overturned, The Trump administration is not among them. And the solicitor general has said that the foster agencies could win without overturning Smith. So first, do you agree with Adam that the foster agencies are likely to win and give our listeners a sense of the various grounds the court could use, ranging from narrow ones to broad ones, to hand them a victory? And also, what would the implications be for other cases involving religiously motivated organizations and individuals who want exemptions from anti-discrimination laws?
2: I, I think that the uh, foster care agency here, Catholic Social Services, may well win. And I say that primarily because of the trend that Adam and I have seen and written about uh, in the court's decisions on the free exercise of religion clause. Uh, this is a very strong free exercise court. Uh, in fact, uh, I'd say that probably there have been only two justices on the court who clung, and, and I guess now there's only one who clings to the concept of a wall of separation between church and state. Uh, that was Justice Ginsburg and uh, currently Justice Sotomayor. I think they're the only ones left, and you will often see them in dissent in cases like this. Uh, it's hard to see On what grounds, uh, uh, it's hard to see where there is a compromise here. Uh, I'm thinking of Justice Ginsburg at the moment who uh, once said, and I'll only paraphrase it, that your fist ends where my nose begins. And and that's where, where these cases present this conflict between your right to exercise your religion and say someone else's right to be free from discrimination on the basis of race, gender, uh, uh, sexual orientation, creed, national origin. And it's very hard to see sometimes, you know, where there is room for compromise here. In fact, Jeff, uh, there's a, a book out recently uh, called The Religion Clauses. Erwin uh, uh of uh, the University of California at Berkeley uh, is one of the authors, And, uh, I asked him recently, uh, there are other scholars who say there is room for compromise and look at justice Kennedy's opinion in the Baker case, even though the the Baker won, he said, he's hopeful that there's going to be respect on both sides. And Kamerinsky said, he doesn't think there is any room for compromise here. So there's going to be a winner and there's going to be a loser. And based on, uh, what we've seen of the, the current, the Roberts court, it looks as though Catholic Social Services could be the winner. Except there is, as Adam pointed out, one sort of wrinkle here. This this has to do, and the way that the city is presenting its argument, is that it, the city's saying, you're talking here about our ability to manage, in a sense, our workforce, our internal affairs. And the Catholic Social Services is asking you to uh, transplant Free exercise framework into a managerial context here, and that's a little different from uh, the case involving the baker who 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 won't bake a wedding cake for a same-sex couple, or a florist who won't uh, do a, a floral arrangement for a same-sex couple that's going to be married. Uh, and I, I don't really know how that's going to play out, but um, based on uh, what the five conservative justices have done in this area. And based on what I I think Judge Barrett might do if uh, she is confirmed, uh, I think Catholic social services will will prevail in this case. Uh, and I think I think that will have a more significant impact on uh, going forward on what cities can do with their non-discrimination policies, ordinances, regulations, than really what we saw uh, happen with the baker and the florist, because there are many bakers in a city and many florists in a city. And uh, the same-sex couples that may have been discriminated against can still find relief there. But in the city of Philadelphia, it might be harder for same-sex couples, married couples who want to be foster parents uh, to, to to find uh, something similar uh, to what Catholic Social Services is offering.
0: Our next case is Torres against Madrid involving police violence. Adam, you wrote about the case in the New York Times. Tell us about the facts and also tell us how it raises the question of the status of the Hodari D case. I have to call out Hodari D because whenever I teach it, I love Justice Scalia's quotation from the biblical proverb the wicked flee when no man pursueth. And he used that proverb to assert that the avoidance of the police indicates guilt. Hodari D. said that a citizen who an officer is trying to restrain either has to submit to the restraint or the officer has to use physical force for a seizure to occur. So what's the relevance of Hodari D. in this important case involving police violence?
1: Well, that's that's the basic question, but let me take a step back. Uh, our society has been wrenched and racked by uh, debates over police violence. And the Supreme Court has largely stayed out of what seems to many people to be the core question in the case, uh, in, in these disputes, about whether police should be entitled to what the law calls qualified immunity, whether uh, in order to sue them, people should have to um, overcome a very high bar. And the court, there was a lot of hope uh, among people across the ideological spectrum, because this is not an issue that divides people ideologically. There's a lot of criticism of this doctrine of qualified immunity. And there had been some hope that the court would take one of, say, 10 cases that had piled up at the end of the last term, but it turned them all down. That said, there was a case already on the docket, and it had been scheduled to be argued before the pandemic hit last term, that will be argued early in the term, this term, that raises a a really fundamental question about how you think about police violence. The case arose when Roxanne Torres was in her car early in the morning and uh, uh, police showed up at the housing project where she was in her car. They were looking for someone else. They were trying to execute a warrant on someone else. But for some reason, they caught her interest She says that they approached her car. She thought she was trying to be carjacked. They were not wearing, she says, uh, identification, and she says they did not identify her. And so she tried to drive away. And there's a dispute about precisely what happened. Uh, The police say that she tried to run them over. In any event, uh, they shot her many times, hit her twice. She managed to get away. And the question in the case is even more fundamental than qualified immunity. It's may you sue under the Fourth Amendment. uh, And the typical way you sue is you say your your rights have been violated because the Fourth Amendment prohibits unreasonable searches and seizures. And the courts have always said that this kind of use of force, perhaps excessive force, to try to stop people from fleeing is uh, a seizure. Uh, The Tenth Circuit, however, said it's only a seizure if you stop. If you manage to get away, it's not a seizure. And that's at odds with other courts of appeals. And what the Supreme Court is going to decide is whether she has the right to sue at all, because although shot by the police, she managed to get away. Uh, And should she win that, then she would still have to prove other elements of her case, including that the police are not entitled to qualified immunity. But it's interesting that this fundamental question about what do we mean by seizure is an open one. And uh, given the focus on police violence, uh, the case will attract more than the usual amount of attention.
0: Marcia, as Adam said, the 10th Circuit is holding that a suspect's continued flight after being shot by the police negates a Fourth Amendment excessive force claim may be hard to square with the statements in the Hodari D decision, which said that a seizure means laying on of hands or applying physical force, even when those efforts are ultimately unsuccessful. And even the Trump administration, as Adam notes, says that Ms. Torres was entitled to sue. Uh, he, He quotes the solicitor general's brief, a suspect's escape will render the seizure fleeting, but will not negate the seizure entirely. Do you agree with all this? Do you see any votes on the Supreme Court for the Tenth Circuit's position? And how might the justices converge on a result in this case? <laughs> this,
2: uh, this case is, is really a wonderful case. Uh, and I think it, it really exemplifies something uh, retired Justice David Souter said uh, in an interview once where he talked about how uh, the Constitution doesn't always tell you what the answer is. That there's language that is uh, ambiguous and you have to sort through it and he mentioned the Fourth Amendment and certain language search and seizure and here we are uh, it's, it's now 2020 and the court is going to have to figure out what does seizure mean which is just a, uh, really a wonderful uh, exercise in constitutional interpretation and so uh, we may very well see this court, uh, with uh, now uh, a number of uh, adherents to originalism, uh, searching through history to see what uh, the founders may have said, what uh, not only what other courts, uh, modern courts have said, in order to arrive at the answer as to what seizure means. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I- I'm not sure really where the court will come out on this. I. I sense that, uh, uh, that there will be considerable sympathy for, uh, the victim's uh, argument here as to the meaning of seizure. Uh, and, uh, again, uh, as Adam cast the case at a time when the, the nation is very much focused on how, uh, police are, are dealing with, um, uh, seizures and searches. So, uh, I think, uh, Is there a narrow way uh, to address this? And the Solicitor General is trying to find such a way, uh, perhaps. But I I think with something like this, uh, the court is going to try to find as bright line a rule as it can in order to provide guidance to the police. Uh, Not surprisingly, Jeff, uh, your civil liberties uh, organizations and libertarian organizations like Cato are on the side of the victim here, and uh, very concerned that if you decide that if the court decides that um, there is a seizure uh, uh, in the facts of this this kind of a case, that in a sense you'll be uh, immunizing uh, the police from any kind of constitutional scrutiny about the use of force that did not succeed. Uh, in subduing a suspect. And so uh, I, I think uh, it's, it's going to be uh, uh, a very interesting argument.
0: It will indeed. And I couldn't resist. I had to look up the proverb. It turns out that it's Proverb 28.1, the wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Adam, our next case is Tamsin versus Tamvir involving the no-fly list. You described it so well in your February 24th New York Times piece, and I'll ask you to describe that case.
1: The case involves three Muslim men uh, who law enforcement authorities tried to persuade and cajole into becoming informants. They said uh, that spying on fellow Muslims would violate their faith, Uh, and they allege that the authorities ratcheted up the pressure by putting them on the no-fly list, which is a very opaque and problematic government program that with vanishingly little scrutiny makes pre-pandemic life, at least, in the modern era, very difficult. You can't get on an airplane in the United States. Um, They sued saying this violated the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. That act uh, was a response to the case we were talking about a second ago where Congress said that at least where federal action is involved, religious rights get heightened scrutiny. Uh, The question in the case is whether these men are entitled to sue the officers involved for money. And here the court's going to be kind of at cross purposes. On the one hand, they are not sympathetic The court is not sympathetic to claims for money against individual uh, law enforcement officials. Uh, The court is also not sympathetic to lawsuits where the government says, as it does here, that national security is involved and the court should stay out of it. On the other hand, the court is generally quite sympathetic, as we've been talking about, to claims of religious liberty. So two sets of uh, impulses, intuitions, commitments will conflict here. Uh, But I suspect that even in the context of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, uh, the court will side against uh, the Muslim men who say they were abusively and wrongly put on the no-fly list.
0: Marsha, do you agree with Adam's analysis? Do you see any votes on the court for the men on the no-fly list? And what is the legal principle that the court might converge
2: on? Well, I, I, I think there, there may be some votes, uh, but I, I tend to agree with Adam that I think the government will prevail here for the, the very reasons that he stated. Um, and those reasons the, the court has been quite, quite clear about in uh, similar kind of kinds of cases. Um, I I wonder, uh, you know, really ultimately how important this case will be, because I think for the most part, when uh, someone sues under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act claiming that some government action has burdened their exercise of religion, basically what they want is they want uh, a court to issue an injunction to stop what the government is doing and I I think that's uh, uh, the the bulk of cases that courts face, not the damages issue. Now, uh, again, if the court found that yes, you could sue government officials for damages, would that open the floodgates against them? Uh, I don't don't think uh, that that's necessarily the case. Uh, the federal government is arguing that. Uh, even if there are no floodgates opened, uh, it would take uh, it would put a, s- a significant burden on government employees uh, to defend themselves against these cases. And uh, the, the court is, you know, sympathetic to something like that. And even if uh, a claim for damages goes forward, you, those government employees still have a defense. Of qualified immunity. So I'm not really sure, Jeff, how important the case will be practically if uh, you know either side wins. Um, but I do tend to believe that this is one where the court will decide that the uh, free exercise claim uh, may have to fall uh, under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act.
0: Our final case is one that the court will hear on the first day of its sitting on Monday, October 5th. Many of the other cases will be heard in November. It's called Kearney versus Adams, and the question is whether a Delaware law that limits the number of judges affiliated with a particular political party to a bare majority on the state's three highest courts violates the Constitution. Adam, what's going on here? So this is,
1: um, it's it's an oddly timely case. It's going to be argued on the first day of the term. And it raises the question of partisanship in judging, a question that's going to be very much on the court's mind as we approach the confirmation hearings. Uh, Delaware, um, the the justices all say that they, their partisan affiliations do not have any role to play in how they do their jobs. Delaware, which has a very respected court system, and you know many, many corporations are located there in part because they're Happy to be subject to the Delaware court system, uh, takes explicit account of partisanship on many of its courts. It says that justices affiliated with one party can only have a bare majority on the Delaware Supreme Court, and that the other justices must be members of the other party. And that this, this presents two distinct questions. Uh, one is hard and the second might be a little easier. Um, the hard one is whether they can take account of partisan affiliation at all, whether they're free to do that under the, federal, uh, under the First Amendment to the Federal Constitution. Um, and there, part of the discussion revolves around, well, are judges making policy? If they're making policy, then Supreme Court precedent says that as government workers, you can take account of partisan affiliation. The harder question, though, is not the bare majority of one party. It's the fact that only the two parties are allowed to participate at all. And the plaintiff in the case says, this is somewhat in dispute, and there's a question of standing in the case also, but let's take him at his word, says that he's a political independent. And therefore, he is boxed out of applying for and being appointed to the courts, period, period because he's not a member of either party. That claim is easy to be sympathetic to, that you shouldn't have to be affiliated with one party or the other to serve. Whether partisan balancing of some kind can be allowed on uh, state courts uh, is a harder question. And it is, you know, in in courts around the world, uh, taking account of partisan affiliation is not uncommon. And trying to balance out partisan affiliation might have some value. Uh, but in any event, it's, a, it's kind of a nice curiosity for the court to be kicking off its new term by trying to figure out the role of partisanship in judging.
0: Yes, curiosity is an eloquent way to put it. Marcia. help us think through these two important questions. Are judges policymakers? And can you exclude a member of a third party?
2: So, Jeff, can't you just see the just some of the justices sitting in the conference room thinking about the New York Times headline, Supreme Court says judges make policy. <laughs> so uh, uh, I'm sure that they would cringe at, or they cringe at that possibility. But as Adam pointed out, it is true that the Supreme Court has said that under the First Amendment, and it wasn't talking about judges, that under the First Amendment, uh, government can take into account uh, whether the, a position is a policymaking position in determining whether to consider part, uh, political affiliation. So, uh, you know, there you go. That's, that's Supreme Court precedent. Uh, and I think, as Adam also pointed out, the harder question is whether you can uh, limit who can sit on your court's to the two major political parties. And there you have um, a First Amendment association claim, freedom of association claim, uh, and uh, even possibly freedom of speech. So uh, I think that is the harder question. (laughs) Delaware, I think, is the only state in the union that has uh, political balancing of its top courts Uh, So in a a sense, it's it's limited to that, but except that uh, political balancing is being done uh, in smaller uh, units throughout the country, uh, and uh, the court's decision could have effect on them as well. Uh, So uh, it does have some impact. And Delaware also feels that its constitutional arrangement here uh, is really uh, the the reason its courts are so well-respected, and they are well-respected, they're business courts in particular, and they don't want to see uh, that upset. Uh, so uh, I, I think it's a wonderful case, and uh, uh, I think the uh, First Amendment claim, uh, the second issue, that the, you know, the uh, major party requirement, is the one that may fall.
0: We the People listeners, if you'd like to check out the precedents the court will be weighing, they include the Elrod and Rutan cases from the late 1990s, it's R-U-T-A-N, where the court imposed First Amendment limits on considering party affiliation in appointing government employees. But the court went on to distinguish between policy-making jobs, which involved the exercise of discretion, and low-level public employees. Adam, as we've discussed these cases, and both of you cast such calm and clarifying light on all of them, Few seem to me like clear five to four or six to three splits. Is that right? Um, and if so, are there other cases bubbling up involving more hot button issues that might lead the court to divide more squarely along ideological lines? Uh, what are you watching in the shadow docket?
1: So the one case that may be an exception to your general point, which is accurate, Jeff, is the Philadelphia foster care case. I think that may well divide along uh, Let's say uh, Judge Barrett is on the court. That may well be a 6-3 case. I think it's going to be hard for the court's remaining liberals to swallow the notion uh, that a government program can discriminate against same-sex couples. The case to watch out for is the case that we don't know the nature of yet, but that seems very likely to arise, which is a case arising out of the election. And that will present the court with a difficult uh, but nonetheless great opportunity to show that the partisan affiliations of the justices have nothing to do with their legal judgments. And we can be hopeful that whatever the case is and whatever the legal issues in it are, uh, that the justices will not divide along partisan lines in a major election case.
0: We can indeed. Marsha, what kind of case might that be? And do you agree with Adam's suggestion that the court is likely to do everything possible to avoid a partisan split in an election case? Do you think that Chief Justice Roberts, who's made the legitimacy of the court his central concern, will be successful if the court gets a big election case in avoiding a partisan split?
2: Well, I think uh, certainly uh, if there is a very close uh, vote count, and it comes very late in the process, and there are other deadlines that have to be met uh, in terms of uh, the Electoral College, that we could see something of a replay of the 2000 Bush v. Gore situation. I think this, this court uh, is well aware of that, that, that case and the fallout from that case. And uh, yes, I think the court would strive mightily to avoid a 5-4 split in such a situation. Uh, And Adam's right, we really don't know uh, what could emerge, but we're seeing that uh, there are many absentee ballots being used. There are concerns about uh, them being counted uh, in time. Uh, we're seeing emergency applications now to the Supreme Court from states, most recently Pennsylvania, where you're located, has uh, asked the Supreme Republican Party has asked Supreme Court to weigh in on uh, Pennsylvania's decision that absentee ballots can be counted if they're mailed by November 3rd election day, even if they come in three days late, up to three days late. Uh there are many similar kinds of issues percolating uh so uh I don't know uh you know we're gonna have to just wait and see how the election actually um uh, what the consequences of the election are uh there are other cases i mean as as you look at the current term there are there are maybe fifty abortion related cases in the lower courts that are are inevitably going to come to the Supreme Court, especially now. Uh, that uh, there is this feeling that uh, a Justice Barrett would be sympathetic to uh, abortion restrictions. So I expect we may see an abortion case. I also think that with Justice a Justice Barrett, based on uh, it, only one opinion she's written still, I think that uh, the court may have enough uh, votes now to take another gun case, second amendment case. I think it was just chief justice Roberts who, uh, has sort of been the reluctant justice to really get back into the second amendment amendment arena. If you recall, uh, in June, uh, the court turned away 10 gun related cases, uh, even though there at the time were four justices and you only need four votes to grant review of a case at the Supreme Court, I think the conventional wisdom was that those four justices were not sure of a fifth vote, the fifth vote possibly being John Roberts, but they may have that fifth vote or may feel they have that fifth vote in a Justice Barrett, so they may get involved in that again. Also, the uh, Trump administration has filed Uh, what we call a jurisdictional statement, which is really sort of an appeal at the Supreme Court concerning President Trump's latest census memorandum. That's the memorandum in which he directed the Commerce Secretary to present him with the number of undocumented aliens uh, in the 2020 census so that it would enable him to exclude them from the final report he sends to Congress that Congress uses for reapportionment of seats in the House of Representatives. The court hasn't done anything with that yet, uh, so we're waiting to see what it may do. Uh, So I think that there is plenty in the pipeline uh, that could turn this term, Supreme Court term, once again into a potential blockbuster Uh, similar to what we saw last term. Uh, It's a heck of a time, Jeff, and we just have to uh, wait and see uh, what what comes.
0: Thank you so much, Adam Liptak and Marsha Coyle, for your stellar contributions to civil dialogue and reasoned debate about the U.S. Constitution. Adam, Marsha, thank you so much for joining. Always a pleasure, Jeff.
1: It was a treat to be with both of you.
0: Today's show was engineered by David Stotz and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Mac Taylor, Ashley Kemper, and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone who is hungry for constitutional debate. Thanks so much, dear We the People friends, to those of you who have taken the time to post reviews. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit We rely on the generosity and engagement and passion and emails and hunger for constitutional learning of people like you from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. We, the people friends, your emails are so meaningful. Please continue to write in and tell me what you think about particular constitutional points raised on the show. This civil dialogue that we're engaged in is, as we all know, more important than ever. You can support our mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership, or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.